Good morning, church. My name is Jimmy Young, and it's my great pleasure to um, preach to you from this great chapter of Scripture, the conversion of the chief of sinners, um, one of my favorite bits of Scripture. If you've been, if this is the first time you've joined us over the last couple of weeks, um, it's good to be here. Like Albert said, we've been going through the book of Acts together, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been very encouraging, very challenging to see the birth of the early church and everything that's going on, ordinary people being used by the Spirit to attest to the Lordship of Jesus. And we're going to see this once again, the Holy Spirit using ordinary men and ordinary women to bring glory to his name. So here's the context. Set the scene. Jesus has died. There um, the, the apostles have, have been scattered everywhere and he finds them in the, in the last chapter of, of Luke or the last chapter of the Gospels and he appears to them and they become strengthened and they become this great missionary movement. We've seen through the, the start of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down with great power and thousands have become Christians. That the church has expanded greatly in the opening chapters of Acts, and it seems like everything's going well. Leaders have been appointed to the church. Great signs and wonders have happened. In the, the early chapters, we see that the apostles and the disciples and, and all these new Christians would come together. They would sell everything they had. They had all everything in, in common, and there was no need And it seems like God's will has gone forward and great things are happening in the church. And then suddenly we we start to see that opposition comes about. So the church has added thousands and thousands of new believers. Day by day, the church is growing and opposition starts growing. So last week, we've seen the death of Stephen. And the results that had. Stephen was a, um, a great young leader in the early church who had been appointed uh, to att- like, attend to the Hellenistic Greeks. But it was a man filled with the Spirit and great power in his words. And they got him killed. Killed by a man named Saul. And so the church has scattered all over the Middle East. From Samaria to Judea. And so we introduced again to a point in time which would have been startling for the early church. See, religions don't prosper under persecution. They die, especially new religions. When you kill the leaders, you cut the legs off their growth. And so the early church has come to this situation where Jesus is gone. He's not around anymore. He's reigning in God, uh, with God in heaven. He's ascended, but he's not around. So for all intensive purposes, the Jews and the Romans have ramped up the persecution. The leaders have started to be scattered. Stephen has been martyred and others have been dragged away and put in prison. This is the crux moment for the early church because it's do or die. And so we come to the chief hunter of the Christians, Saul. So we start reading in verse 1, chapter 9. It says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's any who were Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul's not just an enemy of the church. He is the enemy. He is the hunter, the one that has just been so, uh, so enthralled by breaking up the church. He says that it's the primary threat, that he's breathing threats. It's not just something that he does. It's not just his occupation. It sees him as, as part of himself. He's breathing out threats against the apostles, against the disciples, against the early church. He's like a war horse that had been stirred up for battle to persecute, to separate, to destroy the early church. And if we, we whitewash this, we whitewash a lot of what happens later. But this, this story is an incredible story of what God does. Because as we'll, as we'll learn, Saul gets converted. But right now, it seems impossible. See, Saul didn't grow up with a great Christian family who would tell him all about Jesus. And Saul didn't live a great moral life that would have him close to the Father. He's, he's a murderer. He's a terrorist. That's who he is. And the, the conversion that we see later, it would be similar to Vladimir Putin becoming the great Christian missionary in Russia or Richard Dawkins becoming the C.S. Lewis of the 21st century. That's what we're about to see. In fact, Paul writes of this time in his life later on in the book of Acts, Acts 26. This is what he says about his time. He has no regrets. We want to get Acts 26 up on the screen, and I think it's the, the next one. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul had no regrets. This was what he was doing. He was fundamentally opposed to the way, to the life of Jesus, to the Christian movement, the early church. And he would go from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, to t- from town to town, with the intent of splitting up the early church. This is the great enemy. Paul was a murderer. He was a terrorist. He was far off from grace, which makes what happens all the more spectacular. So, Paul has gone to the high priests in Jerusalem, seeking uh, their approval to go down to Damascus, about 150 miles away, which is about a week's journey, um, to, to find early Christians. He's done his work in Jerusalem. The apostles have scattered. The disciples have scattered. The early church has scattered. And he wants to go down to Damascus to, so that he could do the same job. He wants to be the wrecking ball that he was in Jerusalem in Damascus. So he's gone down the way. It's about midday. And if you, I know we've got a, a bunch of people who've grown up in the Middle East and in similar climates, 
but during the middle part of the day is the hottest part of the day. It's when you usually have a siesta or you have some time to, to rest in the hottest part of the day. You work in the cool, but Paul doesn't care. Paul's so intent upon his mission of destroying the early church that midday he just keeps going down. made me think Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's doing, he's got this great task of destroying the early church. And before he gets there, I was thinking this week about all the little things that God had put in his path to remind him of the gospel. See, uh, in Acts 26, again, when Paul's recounting his conversion story, he has this statement that he heard from Jesus. It says that, uh, it'll be on, on the screen if you want to take a look. When Paul gets converted, he says this, We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now goads is a weird word. We don't have it anymore. We don't use it anymore. It's just a big stick that they use to hit the ox or use to hit the donkeys or use to hit the horses to make them go. And as they would hit them, the ox would try and kick the goad out of the hands of those who were holding it. And God was doing the same with Paul. He had put all these moments in his way before he even got to telling him who he was. Paul had just come from the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen, the great apostle apostle who... um, who was appointed by the early church as a great leader, Paul approved of his murder. But Stephen didn't die casting out curses against Paul. He he died praying for him. There have been countless men and women along the way that Paul has dragged out of the synagogue. Sorry, Saul has dragged out of the synagogue, into jail, maybe even killed them as he approved the casting of votes when it came to whether they should die or not. And I, I, just, I just think that God has placed all these moments in the way of Paul before his conversion. Remind me of a story I heard John Piper talked about in his book, Desiring God, of a guy called Sergei Kordakov. See, Sergei was a, 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 a lieutenant in the Communist Party and his job in, in Russia was to go around to different prayer meetings and find out who was the Christians and to persecute them and to break them up, to make sure that they didn't happen anymore. So he would go around from prayer meeting to prayer meeting, and one night he found this 15-year-old girl called, uh, he later found out whose name was Natasha. And he, he got upset because Natasha was a very beautiful girl, and he thought, what a waste that this young girl had become a Christian and was in these prayer meetings where, where she was just being led away from the truth. And so he picked her up by her throat and threw her against the wall. A couple of days later, Sergei went to another prayer meeting with the intent of breaking it up, and he found Natasha there once again. And he was incensed that this woman who had so much going for her would become a Christian and that even though he'd thrown her against the wall and persecuted her and had, had great punishment against her, so he stripped her down of her clothes and started beating her until flesh would come off his hands. He thought, this is the end of it. 
this is the end of Natasha's faith. She'll never, ever go to a prayer meeting again. And then a couple of days later, Sergei went to another prayer meeting to oppose the Christians there, to beat them, to take them off to jail, and he found Natasha there. And as the guards who had been at the previous prayer meeting saw that Natasha was there, they went to start beating her, and Sergei moved in front of her and just said, she, no, she has something that we don't. I don't understand it. And Sergei, many years later, became a Christian because of the example of Natasha. Someone who was willing to die for the faith. A goad that could not be worked against. So Saul has almost come to Damascus. He set a furious pace. He's working through the midday. He's pushing his team to get to Damascus so that he could break up the early church. And it's just about midday. So I want you to imagine yourself in the early church right now. You've been scattered all over the Middle East. Every single power structure that had any influence is against you. The Romans hate you. They crucified Jesus. They crucified your leader. The Jews hate you. They're sending these these men and women against you. The Pharisees hate you. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish law, hate you. The prospect's no good. Saul, the great hunter of the church, is on the way to disperse, to destroy, to break up once again. If I was in the early church, I would be shattered. This would seem like the end. But God does something great. Let's pick it up from verse 3. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The hunter has become the hunted. Saul, the great hunter of the early church, the persecutor, the oppressor, has become hunted by God and set apart for his purposes. I can only imagine what Paul must have been thinking when he gets knocked off his donkey by this flash of light. He's blinded. He can't see. This great hunter cannot see anymore. And suddenly he hears a voice that's the voice of Jesus speaking to him. And I can only imagine Saul thinking, oh crap, this is true. Everything the early church is saying is true. Everything that the the people have been carrying out from the churches is true. Every person that I've put to death, they've been speaking the truth. Stephen, who was martyred, he was speaking the truth. And I'm on the opposite side. Jesus is real. Jesus did rise from the dead. He was the Son of God. Everything they've been saying is true, and I'm on the other side. I'm opposing God. What the hell have I done? What the hell have I done? Jesus is alive. Everything is true, and I'm on the other side. I was reading this week, it just, it, this, just, this story 
Saul getting knocked off his donkey at the height of his powers as he was about to persecute the church, as he was about to bring Christians to jail and to murder them once again, just reminded me about the great doctrine of election. It just means that God saves who he'll save. Paul is not someone who's had an easy introduction to Christianity. He hasn't gone through an alpha course. He hasn't done life explored. He hasn't done Christianity explained. He doesn't have people who have been praying for him. People have been praying so that he doesn't come close to them. The doctrine of election just says that God will save who he will save, that he has got people who he will save before the foundation of the world. It says this in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We learned a little bit about them a, a couple of months ago. It says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, when it comes to election, I know there are a lot of people who are a bit uh, iffy on this and who feel a bit strange about the fact that God will save who he'll save, that he'll call who he'll who he will call. We like to feel that we've got a lot more choice than we actually do, but I hold the doctrine of election quite closely because I know that if God didn't choose me before the foundation of the world, I would not have chosen him at all. See, I, I, I'd like to think that I'm a, I would have chosen God, but I just know that's not true. And there's this famous metaphor of, um, you know, that we're sort of drowning and we reach up to God and God rescues us in this helicopter. And it's just not true. Like, that's not true in the, the story of Saul. Saul's not reaching out his hand to God asking to be saved. He's reaching out his hand with a sword to cut down the, the work of the king of kings. God saves him anyway, because God will save who he will save. Charles Spurgeon, who's uh, an absolute hero of mine, was a Baptist preacher, pretty much invented the megachurch back in, I don't know, the 18th century. He said this about the doctrine of election. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. It's a great quote that might as well have been written by Saul. Saul had no reason to be chosen by God. He wasn't perfect. He was a persecutor. He was a murderer. He was a terrorist. He was against the people of God. And God said, I've chosen you before the foundations of the world for my purposes. So we keep reading. Verse 7. Jesus has just commanded Saul to go into the city of Damascus. It says this, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. What an amazing picture. Saul the hunter, Saul the great persecutor, Saul the oppressor, Saul with all the knowledge, Saul with all the wisdom, Saul who is going to divide the church has led Damascus blind by the hand. Nothing he can do. He cannot see. 
He cannot walk straight. He's utterly blind. Here's why, here's why I like that. I tend to think that unless you've come to the end of yourself like Saul, it's going to be very hard for you to find Jesus. That's just, that's just been my experience. That um, in almost, you know, it's definitely was my experience when I was young and I didn't believe in Jesus, that God had to use a bunch of stuff in my life to break down the barriers that I'd placed between us. And God just does that. You know, some people have grown up in Christian homes and have always loved Jesus and have known the gospel and can recite it from the age of six. Um, and that's a great story, but it wasn't my story. Um, my story was I was an atheist at 13, and God, uh, I, I, what I believe is that God actually um, destroyed a lot of stuff in my life, a lot of pillars of my identity, so that I would have only Him to rely on. Now, the prayer that I prayed when I became a Christian was, God, I don't believe that you exist, but if you do, please save me. I think that's Saul's experience. Saul had all this knowledge, all this wisdom, all this experience, all this power, all this influence, and he was led into the hands of the Father, blind, desperately needing help. I think that's the Christian experience. And if you're sitting here this morning, I know I've had a couple of conversation with people asking, do I need to suffer to become a Christian? Um, or do I need something massive to happen in my life to become a Christian? The answer is no, of course not. You need to believe in Jesus to become a Christian. But my experience is that when we put barriers in the way of God, those barriers get obliterated before grace. So let's, let's keep moving. Verse 10 to 12. This is my favorite bit of the story, to be honest. There was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias is a boss. That's the only thing I could think of when I started reading this scripture. Ananias is an absolute boss. Top three Bible names. That, you know, Sarah and I don't have kids yet, but he's going to make the top three list of Bible names. It's going to be Ananias, Melchizedek, and uh, Habakkuk. So if, uh, don't be surprised in seven years when you see, you know, little, little Kizedek. Um, but Ananias, absolute boss. And here's why I love Ananias, is that he is one of the obscure heroes of the Christian faith. So you don't ever hear about Ananias again. He doesn't get a book of the Bible. He doesn't get another story. He just gets this. This is his big moment. And he's freaking out. See, Ananias would have known about Saul. Ananias has probably had friends who've lost their husbands because of Saul. Ananias has probably experienced people being cast out of the churches. He's probably heard from letters about Saul the hunter. He's probably been praying with the early church in Damascus, that God would save them from Saul. 
And so he gets this vision from God, and Ananias is going, okay, yep, uh, yep, I know, I, know, I know that guy. I know uh, Judas. Yep, I can go to Judas' house on Straight Street. Yep. Ah, uh, oh, um, Saul, I, th- I think I'm busy that day. I think I, um, I have some other stuff to do, God. I think I have to go hit my ox with a goad. Um, I, I've, got something, I've got somewhere else to be. God says, Ananias, I need you to go. Saul, he's my chosen instrument. He's, he's the one that I'm going to use to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to the, to the Jews and to the kings. So Ananias says, okay. And I think this single act of obedience is incredible. So Ananias was scared. Ananias would have been terrified, in fact, because he's just said, God, Saul has been, come to throw us into prison. He's come to kill us. He's come to divide us. He's come to conquer us. And you're telling me to go to his house? God, I've seen the work he's done. My friends have lost their lives. They've been cast out of their homes. They've been thrown in jail. And you want me to go and pray for him? Okay, God. So that's what Ananias does. That's what Ananias does. Verse 17, it says this. Ananias departed and entered the house. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may be see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This, that, those lines just about bring me to tears. See, Ananias has lost friends. He's had friends cast out. He's had fr- friends thrown in prison. And the very first word that Ananias says to Saul is brother. It's not enemy, it's not persecutor, it's not how much further you have to go, it's not you're so far off from the kingdom, it's brother. You and I share something in Jesus that transcends everything. Your past is not your present, it's not your future. In fact, you've got a new future because God has made you a son of the king and you and I share that. And even though all this stuff's happened, we're on the same level now. We're in the kingdom. We follow Jesus together. And that's grace. See, maybe you, you came here feeling this morning a little bit like Saul would have felt. That you've heard about Jesus, that you've had this experience, that you know something about the gospel, that you've been attending church, but you feel like, well, this is not for me. I don't feel like this. I'm not, I'm not really fitting in here. Uh, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know my experience. And to that, Ananias would say, brother, sister, this is grace. I've come to pray for you. I've come to pray for you so that you may be, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the great news of the gospel. It goes on to say, actually, no, let's, let's not. I, want, I just want to say something about Ananias. This is, this is why I love Ananias, right? Is that he's an obscure hero of the Christian faith. There's not going to be any books written about Ananias. There's not going to be any stories told about Ananias. This is his one thing. We never hear about him again. And it made me realize, whoever heard about who converted Billy Graham to the faith? Whoever heard about who converted J.R. Tolkien to the faith? 
Whoever heard about who converted um, any of the great Christian leaders? Who converted Augustine? Who converted, um, I'm trying to think, who converted Charles Spurgeon? No one knows. You could probably find out. Who converted C.S. Lewis? Yeah, we could probably find out if we really tried, but the fact is we don't know a lot of their names. We just know that they were obedient to God and they shared the gospel. That's why I love Ananias. He doesn't have mad skills. He's not doing amazing works and wonders. He's not being given a great leadership title. He just hears from God and says, okay, I'm scared, but I'm in. That's why Ananias is important. That's why I love Ananias. That's why his top three in my Bible names for children. goes on to say, verse 18, And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's go back one. There we go. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul, Saul gets knocked off his donkey. He gets told the gospel. He gets brought into the family. He gets prayed for. And his response to this overwhelming love, this overwhelming grace that has overcome everything, is I'm going to tell someone else. That's what I'm going to do. I have no other uh, response. The great hunter has become the great missionary. Instead of hunting people to cast them off to jail, he starts hunting them for Jesus. It's very encouraging, I think. And a great, uh, I think one of, the, one of the most encouraging things for me working with youth and young people is that uh, they don't have a lot of fear sometimes. Sometimes they have some fear, but a lot of the time they don't. And so when they become Christians, when they get converted, they don't have these fears and anxieties about what other people will think about them. And so they just go and tell other people about Jesus. And they tell him how awesome he is and how much he's changed their life and how much he could change other people's lives if they just let him. And that's the example of Paul. I know that sometimes when I think about sharing Jesus with my friends, I get anxious and fearful, but Paul's just like, I don't care. Man, I got knocked off my donkey. I don't want that to happen again. If that's how God treats me when, I, when I'm trying to, trying to go against him, I'm going to obey him. And so the persecutor becomes the great missionary. And I just want to end on this thought. We're not going to go to 31. I just want to focus on this. I wondered why Saul's conversion is in the Bible. Why has God placed this story in? Why didn't God just create this upwards trend that everyone who heard the gospel would respond to it? Why does he talk about persecution? Why does he talk about oppression? Why does he talk about this guy who's a murderer, who's a terrorist, who was dividing and conquering the early church and tells us how he became a Christian? And I think the reason is simply 
that Paul's conversion is for us. So you might be sitting here this morning going, well, I'm far off from the kingdom. Last night I got drunk. Last night I had sex outside of marriage. Last night I looked at porn. Last night I had a blunt. Saul's conversion is for you to tell you that no one's too far off. I was uh, having a conversation with a young guy earlier this week. We uh, had our young adults small group, which was just launched in the last couple of weeks. And it was really awesome. And we're talking about election. We're talking about how God saves, who he'll save. And he said to me, well, I don't understand why God would want me. I don't understand why God has his hands on me. Because we use this analogy that, you know, not, it's, it's not like we're in the, the, the ocean drowning and God, we lift up our hands. It's more like we've got this great scooper and God's like raising us from the dead. He's just holding us and not letting us go. And the question was, why is God like that? Why is God holding on to me? I'm not following him. I'm not, I'm not doing the things that I know I should do. In fact, I see the things that I'm meant to be doing. I see that I'm meant to be stirring my affection for him. But instead, I just go off and do my own thing. Why does God not let me go? Because God saves who he'll save. God will save who he'll save. And there's no one too far off for the gospel. There's no one who's too far off from Jesus. You might have done some stuff in your life. You might have gone through some experiences. You might have... um, even right now, be feeling pretty rubbish. You weren't a murderer. Mate, well, maybe you were. I don't know. You, you could have dodgy, you could be serial killers. Even if you were, the gospel's still available. The gospel's still there. Jesus still died for you. For everyone who truly repents, your story can be like Paul's story and like Saul's story. But the chi- if the chief of sinners, as Saul uh, describes himself later, can become the greatest missionary, there is nothing holding you back. Don't let guilt overcome what God is doing in you. Friends, I'm going to end it there. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing some songs. But this is, a, this is a good time to sort of just sit for a second and dwell on what the story of Saul and later Paul means for us. The fact that the greatest missionary, the guy who read and wrote most of the New Testament was also its greatest oppressor, its greatest persecutor, what that means for us. So I'm just going to pray. I'm going to just leave it open for 30, 40 seconds and then I'll pray for us.